Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn with me to Acts chapter 5? And I'm sorry, i got to peel this off. I'm getting a little warm up here. Uh, Acts chapter 5. And in verses 12 to 42 that we read just a little bit ago, we're given a powerful paradigm. We're given a model for what God desires to occur in the church of Jesus Christ. He wants his church to be productive. Uh, If, and it's more like when, because Jesus promised that we would experience this, so So when the church faces persecution, Jesus expects it to be, and he commands it to be perseverant. And we see all three of those elements present in the church that's described here in chapter 5. A powerful paradigm, a model. But more importantly, we find here an example for us not to just recognize, but, but to respond to by making their testimony ours as well. They're a productive church, verses 12 through 16. It gives us some details about how the early church continued to operate. Uh, They've been through the ringer right off the bat, hadn't they? I mean, just think about what we've studied for four chapters now. Two of their leaders had been arrested. Uh, They were told by all the religious leaders and governmental authorities to completely halt uh, their mission. And we saw last week that Satan had even attacked them from within with uh, temptation and sin. So how did they respond? What did they do? Well, they did just what Jesus told them to. They were a productive church, first of all, in coming together. Uh, Something that I frequently hear at uh, pastors' meetings and conferences and conventions, that that sort of thing. And and it's something that, that grinds my gears. You know what I'm saying when I say that? Like, you ever have something that just aggravates you when it's proposed because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense? Um, it's the phrase and this concept. Churches have a come and see approach instead of a go and tell productivity. Now, I know what they're saying, and they're not entirely incorrect. I mean, there are churches, because there are individual Christians who compose those churches, who view the church like a a fortress and um, where we're just supposed to hold the line just occupy and and be defensive until Jesus returns. These would be churches who are just focused on themselves and who fail to reach out into their communities and impact them with the gospel. Uh, And so, yes, that's a real and dangerous occurrence. And as we'll see in a minute, it's not at all the paradigm or the model that the Bible provides for a productive church. But, But what is so often the case whenever human beings attempt to address a weakness or a threat, too often we go completely too far in the other direction. And that's the part of what I hear in these pastor get-togethers that, that I believe is incorrect and it aggravates me. I saw, uh, as I was preparing this message this week, uh, I saw a social media post where somebody had a picture of a church sign and, and it said this, God isn't calling us to go to church, he's calling us to be the church. Well, yes, but actually no. You cannot be the church 
without going to church. That's part of his command to be the church. Um, it's an essential component of being the church. Uh, it's not an either-or thing. Uh, it's a both-and thing. If the church is going to be productive and going together, like this one has been, uh, in accomplishing the Great Commission together, they also need to be faithful in coming together. The early church sure was. Isn't that the record we've had so far? I mean, from every indication here, um, they met together daily. Oh, don't worry. Let's settle down. I'm not going to adjust your worship schedule or add any more services here. Um, but what we've seen for five chapters now is a church that they are committed to assembling together in unity together, also that they can powerfully and productively accomplish a mission that God gave them together. Look at the end of verse 12. I'll read the whole thing. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. But here's the part I want you to focus on. And they were all with one accord <clears throat> in Solomon's porch. Before we began this series in the book of Acts, we were going through Hebrews, where God tells us in Hebrews 10, verse 25, that we should never... Never be forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is. It was a manner of some then. It's a manner of some now. But exhorting one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching, as you see it getting all the more near. A productive church is a church that is faithful and committed to coming together. Now next in verses 13 and 14, uh, we have a, an interesting, because it's, it's seemingly contradictory dynamic described in these two verses. First of all, in verse 13, we find out there was some concern among the people about coming together. And what's described here is people who might have been on the fence. They were like hearing the gospel preached, seeing uh, what this early church was doing, thinking they might want to be a part of it. But then what we studied last week happened. And they saw the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. And verse uh, 13 says, And the rest durst no man, durst King James for they, they were thinking maybe we shouldn't. The rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. You know, at the same time, verse 14 describes what? More believers being added to the Lord. In fact, multitudes. <laughs> multitudes of both men and women. And so... If the previous persecution from without and how God had just handled sin from within, if it did anything here, verses 13 and 14 are telling us it purified the church, made it stronger. Numerical statistics, how many people were there? It might fluctuate up and down in such a situation. But the end result is this. The church is more unified. It's more productive by being composed of genuine believers who are, who are committed to their Lord and Savior and who are devoted to their mission. And so, again, our whole purpose in being committed to coming together is so that we will be productive, productive in going together. Let's go back to verse 12. We already read it, but, I mean, would you look at what is described there? And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. When we began the series in the book of Acts, I mentioned that the pastor and radio preacher, J. Vernon McGee, he, he thought he had a better uh, name for the book of Acts. He called it the continuing work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through his followers. That'd be a really long title, so I'm glad God and the early church just chose the Acts of the Apostles. But that's what verse 12 
It describes happening, the continuing work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through his followers. That's what God wants happening today. It says, by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. The apostles led the church by example in this, as you are going, make disciples, great commission effort. Look at verses 15 and 16. People would bring the sick into the streets with the intent that hopefully even the shadow of Peter passing by, it might overshadow them and heal them. And it says, multitudes came from the cities all around Jerusalem, bringing those who were in need of healing, and they were healed every one. So, so this was no church who was so um, self-focused uh, that they failed to be going on mission together. And, and I just love this picture that's given to us here in these verses, people bringing others to the life-transforming work of the gospel. That's what's described here. Please know this. You, you are completely capable yourself, Christian, of being used by God's Holy Spirit to help somebody trust in Jesus as their Savior, to point them to how their life can be transformed by receiving Christ. But even if you are unsure or you've never done that before or you feel unqualified, you can do what they did here. You can bring them to a, a gospel contact like what was done here. You know, I'm reminded of those friends of the lame man back when Jesus was on his earthly ministry. And they went to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And what did they do? They tore apart that roof. And they lowered his, his stretcher down so that he could have a contact with Jesus so that they could, so he could meet Jesus, so he could be healed, so he could have his life changed forever. And so at the very least, part of our going together ought to look like this, uh, being a stretcher bearer for someone who needs to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, being a stretcher bearer to bring people into contact with the gospel. There was nothing magical about Peter or Peter's shadow that resulted in healing, just as there was nothing magical about his words or his hand a couple of chapters ago when he met that lame man at the beginning of the opening of the temple and told him to rise and walk in the name of Jesus. It's just a contact. <clears throat> Here his shadow uh, was simply a point of gospel contact, a contact for them to express their faith in Jesus. Can I ask you something this morning? Are you a gospel contact? I mean, maybe at school for young people or on your sports team or for those of us who are older, at work, in your neighborhood, in your community, even in your family, sometimes that's the hardest people to be a gospel contact to. And what I mean is, is your testimony of following Jesus uh, such that even your presence, like Peter's here, like his shadow, your presence is seen by the lost as a, a way for them to make contact with and express faith in Jesus Christ. Do, do you, are you seen as a way uh, for them to come to know more about Jesus? Back in Acts 4.30, when, when they were initially met with arrest, and imprisonment and threats, these Christians prayed together that God would continue to do signs and wonders through them. And we see the record here that God had answered their prayers. So make no mistake, if we're going to mimic this model of what God wants our church to be like, uh, we must be a productive church, just like they were. And that's always a church who's committed to coming together but also to going together. We see a powerful paradigm of what Christ wants his church to be also in that it was a persecuted church. I mean, they were in danger. 
the level of attack that Satan had used to persecute the church back in chapter 4, it hadn't stopped the church from doing what God commanded them to do until he returns. They kept healing in the name of Jesus. They kept teaching in the name of Jesus. They kept making disciples. And verse 17 tells us uh, that the high priest and the Jewish religious leaders who formed what was pretty much their supreme court, they were filled with indignation at the ongoing mission of the church. And as a result, in verse 18, it records them laying their hands on the apostles and putting them in prison. It doesn't seem like it's just Peter and John this time. From what's described here, it looks like the entire leadership of the church, all of the apostles, all of the disciples, are imprisoned in, in this attempt to squelch the movement. And we're going to skip over a chunk of verses here, but just for a minute, because I want to understand I want us to understand the level of danger they were subject to. This is a a definite escalation. Look at verse 33. It says, And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart, and they took counsel to slay them. So this is no more just about being in prison. They want them killed. These religious leaders, the, the very same ones that had just a few weeks earlier, who had arrested and tried and crucified Jesus, they now begin to take counsel, to make plans to slay his followers. And we're going to find out later in the book of Acts, and we, and we know from church history that this would eventually happen to these men. And not just the leaders, but also the members of the church, they would face this same fate, whether by Jewish religious leaders or decades later in Roman arenas facing gladiators and wild animals. Christians would stand firm in their faith even when threatened with death. And I truly believe that came as no surprise to them. I mean, they had literally heard Jesus promise this would be the case for his followers. They heard Jesus say in Luke 14, 27 through 28, that, that while salvation and the eternal life that we have by faith in Christ, while that is free as can be, that there's unquestionably a cost of following Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor who ministered to his congregation under the Nazi regime. He ultimately gave his life for his faith, he said this, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Martin Luther, pastor and Reformation leader, he experienced that threat, a threat of losing his life for his faith. He said a religion that that costs nothing and that gives nothing and that suffers nothing, that religion is worth nothing. Listen, I say it because Jesus said it. There is a danger to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's a danger to making disciples of Jesus Christ. You are going to have the full force of hell, the full force of this world, and honestly, in this day and age, as weird as it is, you'll probably have a good component of the professing church against you in doing that and making disciples of Jesus Christ and standing firm in your faith. But it's worth it. It's so eternally worth it, amen? Isn't it? To follow Jesus, to do what he's asked, to make disciples, to, to be used of God and the Holy Spirit to bring somebody to faith in Christ. There's nothing like it in the world. And we need not fear being a persecuted church. We need not fear any danger that comes our way for our faith because God has always promised deliverance. We sure see that here. And we're going to summarize um, what went on here for the sake of time, but there's a few things that I'm forced uh, to bring your attention to. Some of it's actually humorous. 
In verses 19 to 21, we find out that God sent an angel, right? God sent an angel to deliver all of these Christians who were in prison. Now, the reason that's funny, or at the very least a little ironic, is that the Sadducees, the main component of the Supreme Court that was trying them, they didn't even believe in angels. And God used one to free these men. And they were delivered with a purpose, weren't they? They were given orders uh, with their freedom. They weren't just free to, oh, you've had a rough day. You've been in prison twice now. Um, go home. Take it easy for a few days. Rest up. No, the message of God given to them by the angels in verse 20 was this. I'm going to free you. Now go and stand and speak in the temple to all the people, all the words of this life. Man, what a great description of the gospel. All the words of this life. That's what Peter called it uh, when people were deserting Jesus because of the things he was preaching. Jesus asked Peter and the rest of the disciples in, in John 6, 68, are you going to leave me too? And what did Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what we're to give out, all the words of this life. That's what we're to go and share, to, to go stand and speak, all the words of this life. That's what God had Moses call him all the way back in Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47, right before he would die, right before Moses uh, handed over leadership of God's people to Joshua. Moses pleaded with God's people, set your hearts, <laughs> set your hearts on all the words which I testify to you this day so that you can command your children to obey carefully. All the words of this law, they're not just idle words for you. Moses said, they're your life. They're your life. Verse 21 here says the disciples did just as they were told. They went to the temple. They continued preaching that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. They continued to call people to receive Christ as their Savior. And then the rest of verse 21, it details the high priest assembling the council together in the morning to deal with the situation. See, they think everybody's still locked up tight. In verses 22 to 24, they call for the prisoners to be brought into court, and the jailers inform them, oh, the cells are empty. <laughs> and according to verse 25, someone tells the guards and these leaders where the apostles are and what they're doing. And in verse 26, they're apprehended once again, this time in a little bit more gentle fashion because it says that the guards were concerned with what the response of the public would be. Look at verses 27 to 33 now, because we have a description of these court proceedings. The leaders interrogate the apostles. They demand they immediately halt any more gospel sharing. But Peter and the other apostles, they politely answer, we have to obey God, <laughs> especially when men would command us to disobey God. And Peter and the apostles, they get another chance to preach the gospel to these religious leaders. And as mentioned earlier, those leaders take counsel to kill the apostles because they were cut to the heart, verse 33 says. They were so convicted by the gospel message they had just heard again. In verses 34 to 40, we're given the account of one of these leaders sharing his opinion on what to do, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the leader of the Pharisees. He was respected well by everyone, even the Sadducees. And the apostle Paul even studied under him prior to Paul's conversion. And Gamaliel says this, look, we've seen this kind of thing before, guys. Religious movements and the such, they don't ever amount to much. So just let this go. If it's not of God, it's going to fizzle out, just like all the other ones did. If it is of God, well, there's no point in fighting it. There's not much we can do about it. Hey, we serve an all-powerful and sovereign God, don't we? 
I mean, he, he wields such sovereignty in this world and over everyone in it that he can even make an unbeliever accomplish what his sovereign will is. He can use an unbeliever like he did here uh, to, to deliver these Christians from the danger of death. Verse 40 tells us that they were still beaten and commanded to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They were to stop sharing the gospel. Would this escalation and persecution from just imprisonment to, to now physical violence, would it cause them to shrink back? No, what we see and what God wants us to be is a perseverant church. And when you notice their undiminished joy, verse 41 says that they departed the council doing what? Rejoicing. <laughs> their joy wasn't in their circumstances being just what they wanted them to be. Their joy wasn't in safety and comfort. Their joy was in Jesus Christ. These beaten and bloodied apostles, the, the word beaten there actually is translated in other places in Scripture as skinned. It's highly likely they, they took the 39 lashes and had flesh ripped from their backs. These beaten and bloodied apostles, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy by God to suffer shame, to suffer even pain for his name. This productive church, so productive that they, they had accomplished step one of the Great Commission, according to verse 28. They had filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. This productive church became a persecuted church, but they together made a decision that they were going to be a perseverant church. And once again, I can't help but believe that Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was there as a member of this council, and that he witnessed all of this. Later, God would have him write in Romans 5, 3, we glory, <laughs> we glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience in our lives. And patience brings experience, and experience results in hope. Maybe this was Paul's initial glimpse of what an undiminished joy in Jesus Christ looks like. And it would later motivate him to testify to us in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then much later on, Peter himself would be inspired by God to write of this undiminished joy that we have in Jesus that's part of being a persevering church. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, God has Peter say, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's come on you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. No, rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. A perseverant church has an undiminished joy that just exudes from them because their joy is in Jesus. Listen, that joy cannot be taken from you because Jesus cannot be taken from you. And that joy will propel you to do your undeterred job, just like they did. They chose to obey God rather than the command from the council earlier. Would this time be any different? Would the escalation from imprisonment to being severely beaten, would it keep them from the mission that Jesus gave them? No, verse 42 says that they were undeterred in their job. Daily they came together. Daily they were going together. In the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. With, with an undiminished joy in Jesus, they kept the main thing, the main thing. 
And their main thing was making the name of Jesus treasured here, there, and everywhere. That's our mission. That's our main thing here at Dublin First Baptist. We need undiminished joy if we're going to be undeterred in this job that we've been given. I hope this has already been happening as the Holy Spirit has used God's word uh, given out this morning. I hope that you've been doing an evaluation of our church. I mean, do we line up with this model in these areas? Um, are we productive and faithfully coming together so that we can be empowered in our going together? Well, as a church, we only can be if each one of us who compose it is productive this way. What do we do when we are persecuted? Whether that's from an outside threat or, or from an inside weakness like we learned about last week, sin and temptation trying to work its way in. What do we do? How do we respond? As a church, how do we respond as the individuals who compose it? Do we just ignore things that might need to be changed? Do we, do we shrink back from any threats or weaknesses? Or are we committed enough? Are we devoted enough to our mission as individuals and, and together that, no, we're going to persevere. We're going to go through. In Holy Spirit power, we are going to go through. And to be undeterred in a mission that Jesus gave us, we have to have an undiminished joy. How great the constant temptation is for each one of us to look for or attempt to derive our joy from anywhere else or from anyone other than Jesus Christ. Don't do that. Place your joy in Christ alone. Maybe replace it there if it's moved this morning. Joy will only be undiminished when it's rooted in Christ, when it remains in Christ. And we cannot evaluate our church being modeled after this powerful paradigm here in chapter 5 without evaluating our own personal correlation with productivity and, and being perseverant. Are we each doing what they did? Because only then will we do together what they did. And here's why that matters. This is what I want, and I know you do too. I want the testimony of Dublin First Baptist Church to be the testimony that was given by the enemies of the gospel in verse 28. Let's read that once more. They said, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Isn't that what you want for Dublin? <laughs> you have filled Dublin with your doctrine. <laughs> You have filled Bladen County. Isn't that what you want for your home? It's got to start there. Dublin won't be filled if your home won't be filled with it. If your home's not filled, this church won't be filled with it. If this church's not filled with it, Dublin won't be filled with it. It goes out like this, just like Jesus said, from Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Isn't that what we want here, there, and everywhere? Isn't that what we want, to be a gospel contact like Peter and the apostles were here to have a testimony of faithfully following Jesus among the people that we know, uh, such that even our presence, even our presence is seen by them as a conduit to Jesus Christ? If you want that, ask for his help this morning. As Richard uh, comes, lead us in a, a hymn of invitation, a hymn of response. Commit to be undeterred. Commit to be undeterred in our mission together. This morning, commit to serving with joy, <laughs> with an undiminished joy, because it's in Jesus Christ. However the Holy Spirit has used God's word to call you to respond today, I just ask that you'd obey.